You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. What does it mean to put our hope in a God we can't see? What does it mean to walk the walk of faith? This is our sermon series, Water and Blood, Finding Rest in Jesus, Our High Priest. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews 12, 4 through 14. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, TPJ. I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Sojourn Church Midtown. We are getting near the end of a sermon series that we started actually September of last year on the book of Hebrews, working verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. And we're now in the last part of chapter 12. And something I want you to notice as we get into this text is that we all enjoy seeing somebody really persevere through hardships. We enjoy hearing stories about how somebody endured through hardship until that somebody is us. <laughs> we, we, we like to hear stories about somebody who, well, they triumphed and they came out stronger on the other side. We like those stories, but when we're in the story, it doesn't feel quite the same way, does it? When we are in the middle of the story, we want to hear about that athlete who plays through the pain. But when we're in pain, it's not nearly as enjoyable. We want to hear about that hero who endures suffering and comes out stronger on the other side. But when you are that person, you don't feel like much of a hero, do you? You think about Captain America. There's the one phrase that Captain America says. He's getting beaten down and he stands up in the middle of getting beaten down. And what does he say? I can do this all day. Woo! Go Captain America! But when you're getting beaten down, you know somebody says, you can do this all day, you're like, I'm not, there's something I'll do all day, and it's not that. When you're in the middle of it, it feels different, doesn't it? And as we think about this, I want us to recognize that when you are in the middle of suffering, when you are enduring suffering, one of the things that you are going to want to know is what is the meaning of this? 
Why am I going through this? What does this actually do? What is it accomplishing? And the, the first readers of the book of Hebrews were no different on that. The first readers of the book of Hebrews, they're going through suffering and they are trying to understand what is the meaning of this. Their faith in Jesus was bringing them through a time of hardship and suffering and they wanted to know what was the meaning of this. You see, let's get some of the background here. Remember, they had been Jews. They had been practicing the Jewish faith and the Jewish practices for most of their lives and the Jewish faith, Jewish practices received a measure of support and a measure of tolerance in the Roman Empire at this time. But then they became followers of Jesus, the Messiah. And those who followed Jesus, the Messiah, did not enjoy these same legal protections. And we find out that they were being persecuted. We find out in Hebrews 10.34 that they had lost their possessions. They had lost their positions in their jobs. And they were on the verge, they felt, of perhaps even having their lives threatened for following Jesus. And the author of Hebrews' message to them is, endure. Don't go back to that system of sacrifices that cannot save you. And so in chapter 11, he gave all these examples from the Old Testament of those who endured through suffering. The first part of chapter 12, he shows us Jesus who endured through suffering. And now he gets to the point that we want to hear, which is here's what you are enduring for. Here's the purpose of your endurance. And here's the purpose of their endurance. And this is the key point I want us to get today. And it's your faithful endurance in suffering is a sign that you are a son on the way to a better city. Can you get that truth? Your faithful endurance is a sign that you are a son on the way to a better city. So let's personalize that today. My faithful endurance is a sign that I am a son on the way to a better city. Can you say that with me? My faithful endurance is a sign that I am a son on the way to a better city. You see, true sons, according to this text, he sets up a contrast. True sons press forward through discipline, while false sons retreat backward from discipline. True sons, or false sons rather, settle for a mountain that can be shaken and won't last. But true sons seek a city that can never be shaken. And that's how he sets up this text. True sons press forward through discipline. False sons retreat backward from disciplines. Those false sons, they chase after a mountain that will go away. But true sons chase after a city that can never be shaken. That's why their endurance and yours matters. So let's take a look at this very closely. True sons press forward through discipline. The first encouragement he gives to them is in verse 4. He says, in struggling against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And in context, the shedding of blood is a way of referring to death. That's referring to Jesus who did shed his blood, but to his death. And there's a sense in which what the author is simply saying right here is you're not dead yet. You're not dead yet. You're still alive. And as long as you are alive, there is hope for you to endure. And that's a message that some of you need to hear this morning. That as long as you are alive, there is hope for you to endure. Some of you, this week, you have felt like, I am enduring things, I am going through things, I am struggling against sins, and I cannot keep pressing on through this. I can't. Do you know what this author is saying to you? He's saying, you're not dead yet. That's what he's saying. 
Some of you this past week, you have fallen in sin in ways that you say, God can no longer use me. God probably no longer loves me. I am outside in terms of God's kingdom. Do you know what he says to you here? You're not dead yet. You're not dead yet. And as long as you are alive, as long as you're not dead yet, there's hope for you to endure. There's hope. You're not dead yet. And there's hope for you because you're not dead yet. And so then he begins to prepare his hearers for his primary point, that your endurance and suffering is a sign that you've been adopted as a son. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation, he quotes from Proverbs 3 at this point, that addresses you as sons? My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you're reproved. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son that he receives. Now, I want to pause for just a moment and deal with this word sons. In our culture, in our context, sometimes it can seem as if when we're using sons, that that's diminishing the place or the role of women. And I want us to think through why he uses sons in this particular context. What did it mean to people then? And there was a cultural component. People in that time were much more likely to use a masculine as a default, but there's more going on in this text. You see, in their culture, sons typically were the only ones who received an inheritance, They're the ones who received an inheritance. It was just sons. And particularly firstborn sons received the greatest inheritance, the most inheritance, but sons received an inheritance. So hear this. When it says sons for both men and women who have trusted Christ, what it is saying is that men and women are equal inheritors of the kingdom of God. That's a beautiful thing right here. He's making the same point that Peter makes in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 when he speaks to husbands. And here's one of the things he says to husbands. Show your wife honor as a co-heir of the grace of life so your prayers will not be hindered. Notice what he calls their spouses. He says, your wife is a co-heir, a co-inheritor of God's kingdom. And side note, men, he says, you don't treat her with respect. God doesn't hear your prayers. You don't listen to her, God doesn't listen to you. Might want to think about that. Nonetheless, that's not the primary point of this sermon, but it's a co-heir. Wives, the women in our church, you are co-heirs of the kingdom of God. So ladies, hear this. It's important in this text. Sons doesn't diminish you. It dignifies you by declaring that you are an equal heir in God's kingdom. That's what it means when it refers to you as a son. You are an equal heir of the kingdom of God. And one of the signs that God has adopted us as sons is discipline. Verse 7, endure suffering as discipline. When you're receiving discipline, God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there whose father doesn't discipline him? So your trials and your hardships, your struggles... Your sorrows, they are not accidents. They are God's discipline. They're not an accident. They're the discipline of God at work. Now, before I unpack what that does mean, I want to unpack what that doesn't mean. What that doesn't mean is that your trials as God's discipline, that doesn't mean that God is punishing you for sin when you suffer. That is not what that means. 
That does not mean God is punishing you for your sin when you suffer. I have at times been, in, as a pastor, in hospitals with people who are in a terrible, terrible situations. And they say, what did I do? What sin did I commit that God is punishing me in this way? And it's heartbreaking because it reveals a misunderstanding of the gospel. So let's get this straight. Let's get this in front of ourselves and think about this. If you are in Christ, there is no penalty left to pay for your sins. If you are in Christ, all of your sins have been wiped away. There is no price left to pay. Your suffering can never, ever, ever be anything that is God punishing you for your sin if you're in Christ because the price is already paid. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There is no guilt, no sin left because you owed an infinite debt. You deserved infinite wrath and Jesus took infinite suffering on himself in your place. It is paid in full and in the resurrection he triumphed over that sin. Your discipline is never ever God punishing you for your sin if you're in Christ. That's the gospel. That's, that's essential for us to understand God, when he disciplines you, he allows trials to teach and to train you for holiness. That's what God is doing. He is allowing trials to teach you and to train you for holiness. Now, some of those hardships in your life happen because you live in a fallen world. Because Adam and Eve sinned and you live in a fallen world and some of those trials come because of that. And because we live in a fallen world, our minds, our bodies, and the world itself they don't work according to the way that they were designed. And things happen. There are disasters. There's disease. There's depression. There's desires that you don't want to have. There's attractions that you wish would go away. There's addictions you wish you never had to face sometimes because you live in a fallen world. Now God is working through those and God is calling us to use every resource, medicine, counseling, community, all the different resources to fight those. But understand, sometimes these trials take place because you live in a fallen world. Some of these trials come as a result of other people's actions, things other people did to you, or things other people did that had an impact on you. That's why some of the trials come. Sometimes they come as a result of our own actions. You made a bad choice. You sinned, and there is a natural consequence, but God is not punishing you for your sin. There's simply some natural consequences sometimes that come after sin. And the reason your father allow this, allows this discipline is not to pay you back. It's to bring you closer to himself. God is never allowing this to pay you back. He's doing it to bring you closer. He allows you to endure so you can be more like Jesus. And so look at the example of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 2 and 3, it says that Jesus himself suffered. He Now he is seated at the place of honor, but on the way to that place of honor, he suffered, he endured the cross, disregarding the shame. We also see Jesus in Isaiah 53, and this one is so important. Because in Isaiah 53, what we learn is that Jesus on the cross bore not only our sins, that is wonderful and beautiful and great that Jesus bore our sins, but also our sicknesses, our diseases, all of our afflictions, our illnesses, our pain, our sorrows. It all comes on Jesus. So here's what that means. 
That when you're being trained up in the example of Jesus, God is not allowing anything in your life that he himself is not willing to share. Anything that comes into your life must pass through your father's hand first. And when it does, God himself is choosing to share in that with you through Christ. God doesn't put you through anything that he isn't willing to enter into with you. What he allows, he also shares. And if you look at your life, there's sometimes you can look at certain things. You're like, I know why God did that. I understand why God did that. I see that this tragedy happened. I see this horrible thing happened. And I understand why God did that and praise God for allowing that. But there are other things that you're going to look and you say, I don't know why. That was messed up. And I don't know why God allowed that. There are things in my life I look back at and I have no idea what God was up to. And I may never in this life have any clue what God was up to. And that's okay. That's okay. But we trust that he is up to something good in what he allows. And here's how we know this. If you can turn a cross into an empty tomb, you can turn any tragedy into something good. That's our promise. You may not understand why ever in this life. You may not understand. It's okay. You don't have to. I don't have to. But seek him and understand that in the empty tomb he shows you there is nothing that he cannot turn to good. There's nothing that he can't turn to good. Sometimes you're still waiting to understand why. And that's okay. But your faithful endurance in that discipline is a sign you've been adopted as a son. And if you give up, what it reveals is that you're not a son. He says that you're illegitimate. If you're somebody who gives up and you don't, aren't enduring that, that discipline, then it says you're not actually adopted as God's son, if that is you. Because just as human fathers imperfectly discipline, God perfectly disciplines. We talked about child dedication today. As all of you will learn and probably have already learned, there's sometimes as a parent you get it right and there's sometimes you get it wrong. But in God, he only gets it right. He never gets it wrong. He always gets it right as a father in his discipline. And so what God is doing sometimes in discipline is he is removing the things we are clinging to that we think give us hope and security. He's knocking those out of our hands so that we will cling to him. St. Augustine, the African church father in the fourth and fifth century says this in one of his sermons, don't speak ill of God when you suffer. He is correcting you now so he can console you later. God is knocking cheap and childish toys from your fists so that you will grow up into disciplined maturity. That's what God's doing. False sons, though, go backward to avoid discipline. Look at verse 15 in this text. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. There are two ways that people retreat from discipline. There's two ways that false sons retreat from discipline. One of those is through hidden idolatry. 
He says it's a root of bitterness growing up. And in Deuteronomy chapter 29, 18, what that means is that this is something that is inward and it's an inward idolatry. He's saying it's growing up, but notice what the author of Hebrews says, eventually it springs up and comes out. Those things that you're going back to that you think are secret, they'll eventually come out. They will eventually come out. The things that you're running to that you think nobody but God sees, they will eventually come out. But there's another way that we press back from discipline if somebody is a false son, and it is through outward rebellion. We see it in Genesis chapter 25, where Esau sells his birthright for the pleasures of the moment. He says, I want a bowl of soup. He want a bowl of lentil soup. And just as a side note, you're going to sell your birthright. Get some meat in it, okay? But, but it's, it's a bowl of lentil soup. He sells his birthright for a bowl of soup because that's what he wants in that moment. And there are some people who are chasing after the whatever is the momentary pleasure. But notice something here. Both of these are different types of the same rebellion. <laughs> One nobody sees until it's too late. The other one everybody sees, but both of these are rebellions against God. They are retreating backward into what is temporary instead of chasing after what is eternal. And that's what the first readers of this letter were doing. The first readers, they were retreating backward into the law of Moses, which was a temporary thing. The old covenant was supposed to be a temporary thing. They were retreating backward into what was temporary instead of chasing what was eternal. And so he begins to use this image of a mountain. And the reason he does that is because, as you probably know, the law of Moses was given on a mountain, Mount Sinai. And he uses this as this metaphor for a mountain and two different mountains that he puts in contrast with one another throughout the rest of this text. So look at verse 18. He says, you've not come to what could be touched. He's talking about Mount Sinai right there. To a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a blast of trumpet and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word would be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. And the appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. He said, that old covenant, that law of Moses... Everything about it declared you are far from God, and God is far from you. Everything about it declared that. Not even the animals could get close to that mountain. And Moses, we often think of him as some big heroic figure, and some of our art often of Moses kind of gives that image of him as being this heroic figure. But it says Moses is trembling. He's shaking in his chacos. Moses is terrified when he's on that mountain. Moses is absolutely terrified and what we understand in this is that that old covenant, it was true, but it was temporary and it was terrifying. It was true, yes, but it was temporary and it was terrifying and it was meant to lead to something better, something that was lasting. It was meant to lead to something that would last. The people here, they were retreating back from this good gift God had given them. And they were trying to retreat back to something that was temporary. A few years ago, I was doing a conference for youth ministers. And we went to New Orleans. That's where that started at. So we went to this, this in New Orleans. And this place that was arranging it had gotten us a hotel on the riverfront. Really nice hotel. We got there. It was really nice. But we got there really late at night. 
We're really exhausted, got there a lot later than we meant to. And so we went into this hotel, checked into the hotel, everything worked. And we went up to our room then, and everything looked like, okay, it's really late, but we're going to get a good night's rest. We opened the door to the room, and it was a tiny room. And all there was in there was a bed, and a couch, and a bathroom, and a closet. There's six of us, okay? My whole family is here. So that's all we have right there. It is possible to sleep a family of six in one of those rooms like that, but it is not comfortable, okay? But it was late. And so I said, we're just going to make the best of it. We're just going to go. We're a pile down wherever, and we're just going to make the best of it, get some rest. And so we did. By the next morning, we, we lost the Happy Family of the Year Award by the next morning. But uh, when we got up, woke up the next morning, started getting ready, and then opened the closet door, and it was like going through the wardrobe into Narnia. Because when we opened the closet door, we realized it wasn't actually a closet. What we had in there was two king-size beds, was a balcony, uh, was another bathroom, a kitchenette. We had slept the whole night in this temporary room at the beginning, and we were actually had this whole suite. Now, let's imagine something for a moment. Let's imagine that that night after we moved into this, this great, this sweet suite that they had given us right there, let's imagine that I said, you know, that, that room back there wasn't that bad. I mean, we have good memories of each of us turning over and touching four people every time we turned over. Those are great memories of that. Why don't we just shut the door and go back to that room? What, imagine if I would have done that, okay? It would have been nuts, wouldn't it? But that's exactly what these people were doing. They had passed through a door into the goodness of Jesus, the wonders of Jesus, but they are saying, whoa, let's go back to that other room, <laughs> Let's go back to something that should be temporary at best. Let's go backwards to that, and we're just going to shut the door and pretend that the whole Jesus thing never happened. And that's what's happening in this text. That's what they're being tempted to do in this particular text. And so he's reminding them here, here's what you were saved from a law that was supposed to be temporary, a covenant that was supposed to be temporary. It's not nearly as good as you're remembering it, folks. It's not nearly as good as you're remembering it. It's like sometimes those my age, maybe a little young girl recognize this. You have kids and you remember a movie from when you, that you saw in the 80s. Okay, has this ever happened to any of you? You pull it out, you show up to them, you're like, Whoa, I don't, that movie was worse in a whole lot of ways than I remember that movie was. It's not as good as you remember it. That's what he's saying right here. Mount Sinai, the whole old covenant thing, all that. That was not as good as you remember it, okay? It was not nearly as good. Don't go back to that. It wasn't as good as you are remembering it. They and we have been called to a better mountain. Verse 22. Instead, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels, a festive gathering to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven to a judge who's the God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Whoa. He says, you are coming to a mountain and a city that can never be shaken. Now, of course, he's not talking here about a physical mountain or a physical city where the temple was built. He's talking about the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And as you read this, what you understand is that's not a place, but it's a people. But not only is it a people, it's a party. Did you catch that? 
It's a festival gathering. It's not a place. It's a people that are having a party. Now, this will be fully realized in the future. There will come a time in the future when we experience this in its fullness. But here's the thing we see here. We experience it in part here and now. Like when you gather here as the people of God, you are partying with angels. Think about that. You are partying with angels right here, festival gathering when you gather for worship. I'm trying to just envision this. So I did what all the, 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 the cool kids are doing right now. And, and to find out how to envision this, I entered it into an artificial intelligence graphics thing that creates graphics and artificial intelligence. I entered this verse in, angels and festival gathering. Here's what we got out of this. So that, I, I don't think that's what he's talking about. That's like Lord of the Rings goes to a rave or something like that. I don't even know what's going on there. The other one, the next one wasn't any better. So this was the next one. The next one, I don't even know what's going on in this. Okay. I don't know what all this is that artificial intelligence spit out when I put this verse in, but uh, that's what it's going to look like when the robot overlords take over the world. That's, that's it. That's what the whole thing's going to look like. Is that right there? But so let's just use our sanctified imagination instead. Let's forget artificial intelligence and use our own intelligence to do this. Imagine this. That when you gather for worship, we are surrounded by angelic beings that are beyond our imagination. But it gets even better than that. It says the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Do you know what that means? That means the saints of the past are gathering with us when we worship. Wow. That's what we all long for. I think about that. When I think about this, I think about in book seven of Harry Potter, spoiler alert, but it's been out 20 years, okay? So, <laughs> so book seven of Harry Potter, when, when Harry Potter goes to his death, and around him surrounds him all those who have gone before him. And they support him and encourage him as he approaches his death. And so as he does this, all the, they're all surrounding him. That's what we in our hearts long for in our times of trial, is for those who have gone before us to surround us and love us and support us. And you know what he's saying? In Jesus, that is what you've got. In Christ, that is what you've got. You have got the angels and the saints surrounding you and supporting you. I love what Rich Mullins, the musician, said about this. He said, here's what liturgy offers that all the razzmatazz of modern worship can't touch. You go home from church going, wow, I just took communion. And you know what? If Augustine were alive today, he would have had it with me. And maybe he is. And maybe he did. Here's my encouragement to you in that as you think through this. My encouragement to you is when you come to worship, don't leave any angels or saints in doubt about what God has done. Leave no angels or saints in doubt about what God has done for you. Make sure all the saints and angels that gather here know all that God has done for you. Because I kind of imagine some angels hanging out and they're looking down and they're like, do they know what God did? Because I'm sure that they would be a lot more excited about it if they knew what God had done for them. Did they know? And the other angel says, yep, Jamal told them two weeks ago. And they don't know. And he says, well, why are they not more excited about this? He says, I don't know. You should have seen the nine o'clock if you think this is bad. And they're going back and forth on this, these angels going, talking through this and trying to figure out, now that's my sanctified imagination right there and maybe not as sanctified as it should be. But what I want you to see is that we want to make sure the angels are not in doubt about what God has done. 
sing like the angels need to know and need to hear because what God has done for us, he did not do for the angels. He has not redeemed them in the way he has redeemed you and I. Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, he has saved us. And we want the angels to know about this. We want the saints who've gone before to know that we understand what they and, the, and we, we rejoice in what God did for them as well as for us. How is this possible? It's because Jesus, his sacrifice gives us access to God. It's only through that. It's only through that. That's why it says in verse 24, Abel's blood in the ground when Cain killed him, it screamed out judgment. But we serve a Messiah, and his blood screams out mercy and grace and life. Whew, it's beautiful. Your faithful endurance in trials is a sign that you're a son on the way to a better city where all this is fulfilled. All this is fulfilled. The author ends this text in verse 25 through 29 by saying this. See to it, you do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when they rejected him who warned them on the earth, even less will we if we turn away from the one who warns us from the heavens. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates a removal of all that can be shaken, that is created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that can never be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Same God who shook Mount Sinai. Maybe he's just going to shake, 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 shake the whole cosmos. The whole thing. He's going to shake it, and all that will remain after he shakes it all is what is the city of God and the beauty and the wonder of the nations that he brings into that city. That's all that remains. That is all that will last at that time. And so he gives us a holy warning. He says, our God is a consuming fire. And notice all the way back several verses ago when he started about Mount Sinai, he said about a fire. He says it again. He's just letting us know, your God didn't change. The same God who burned on Mount Sinai, he is the same God that you've got now. What has changed is not the character of your God, but what has changed is your status in relation to him because of what Jesus did. He is still a consuming fire. He didn't stop being a consuming fire. He is still the same consuming fire who burned upon Mount Sinai, but he is a God who in that consuming fire, he has poured that out on Jesus. And for those who are in Jesus and endure in Jesus, we are safe in the firstborn sacrifice. We are safe. So what do we do with this text in our lives? I'll give you three simple things I want you to do. When difficulties come, Remember, God is not punishing you for your past. He is preparing you for your future. God is not, if you're in Christ, God is not punishing you for your past. He is preparing you for your future. This life that we have right now is wonderful. Yes, it's painful. It's hard at times, but it's wonderful and beautiful in so many ways. 
But this life is not the final word. The battle you're going through right now is not lasting forever. This is not the final word. And you love this life best when you love the next life most. When you look forward to that next life and you say, there is going to come a time when all this will make sense. God is not punishing you for your past. He is preparing you for that future. And I love the context it gives. There's a a statement of, in, in the Reformed tradition known as the Heidelberg Catechism. And I want us actually to, to read and respond in this. And I want you to hear how it helps us to see life in light of eternity. I'll ask the question and you respond with the answer. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Wow. God is in the work of saving you. And your present circumstance is not your final word. He is not punishing you for your past. He is preparing you for your future. Secondly, when difficulties come, run to the right mountain. I know there's distinct differences between them and us. I know that. They were being tempted to run back to an old covenant in Sinai. I know the differences there. But I want us to understand there are so many ways that we too are tempted to run back, aren't we? Run back to an old life we used to have, old practices. Run over to the things that are comfortable in our culture, that lets us fit in better in our culture, to run to those. There are so many different ways that we are tempted to run to the wrong mountain. Run to the right mountain. And I want to give you just a simple phrase that I want you to repeat this week when you're challenged in these areas. And it's simply this, I'm headed to a better mountain. Can you say that with me? I'm headed to a better mountain. I'm headed to a better mountain. And in that moment, when you feel the anger, the bitterness arise within you, and you're, you're rehearsing in your mind all the wrong that has been done for you and done to you. And when you're going through that, say, I'm headed for a better mountain. And there's joy in any circumstance. When you're tempted to turn to that bottle or that pill that at one point you used to numb what was going on in your soul, to say instead, I'm headed to a better mountain. And I am not alone in heading there. There is an assembly of the firstborn. There is an assembly, a church that is supporting me and is willing to help me in this. I'm headed to a better mountain that has a better way for me. When you're tempted to numb the the pain with pleasures that are outside of God's good design, instead of that click or that swipe or that call, say, I am headed for a better mountain. And in Christ, I can find pleasures forevermore. And these pleasures will only last for a moment and will leave me broken, but his pleasure will last forever. When you're in despair and you think, I just don't even want to go on. I'd like it to be over. I'd like to end it. Remember this. Remember this. My Jesus has preserved my life for a purpose, and I'm headed to a better mountain. In all of the areas of your life, if you are in Christ, 
you are headed to a better mountain. Don't go back to that other mountain, whatever it may be in your life. Head to a better mountain. And lastly, when difficulties come, know who makes you able to endure. Know who it is that makes you able to endure. There is someone who is strong enough for you to endure, but, spoiler, it's not you. It's not you. We love it when Captain America says, I could do this all day. But the fact is, you can't do this all day. You can't even do it for a moment. You cannot stand against sin even for a moment that you will fall into it so easily. You will fall into what is unhealthy so easily for your life. You will fall into that if you are left to your own devices. You can't do this. You not only can't do it all day, you can't do it for a moment, and neither can I. We can't. We can't. But if you have trusted in Christ, if you are God's child, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the Spirit who lives in you. And that Spirit gives you strength that you do not have in your own power. And God has placed people around you if you will look toward them and you will let them know and you will call them into your life who can give you the support that you need in the times when it is darkest and worst for you. And because of what God has given you, you may give in sometimes, but you will never give up. But it is not because of your power. It is because of His. If you are His child, you will never fall away because though you may give in, you will never give up, but not because of your power. It is because of his power. And that endurance is a sign that you are a son on the way to a better city. You're a son on the way to a better city if you endure. That endurance is an evidence that you're truly a son of God, that you're truly his. Some of you at this moment might be thinking and wondering, well, maybe I'm not a child of God. Maybe I'm not a son of God. I don't know for sure. Was what I did a few years ago or a decade ago or two decades ago, did I really trust Jesus? If that's going through your mind, and I spent most of my teenage years tortured with that in a circle of, did I, did I really trust Jesus? Did I really? Was it real? Was it fake? What was it? Don't worry about it. Stop it. Get out of that circle. Here's what I want you to say. Trust him and endure right now. Right now. Today is the day of salvation. Trust and endure right now. Don't live in that torment. God didn't create you to do that. And that's not how God's grace works. It's not something where you just tried and you might have hit it. You might have not. You might have got it. You might have not. Trust and endure right now. Right now. And then tomorrow, trust and endure again. And in between then, trust and endure. And when you give in, recognize that because I am entrusting enduring, then I, though I may give in, I am not going to give up. And you get up and you keep trusting and enduring. And that's the Christian life. And it's beautiful and it's good and it's hard and it's painful, but it is what God has called us to as his children. And he is the one who gives us the power to be faithful in this. To him be glory. Amen. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. 
At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.